0: once we lose someone who who is central to our identity it rocks our meaning and purpose life mean, seems meaningless and purposeless when we lose someone who's really integral to our identity and it takes a while it takes an active i think an
1: active pursuit of meaning to get back hi i'm brilliant your host for this show i know that i'm incredibly blessed as the son of self-made billionaires i've seen the high price some people pay for success And I've learned that money really can't buy happiness, but I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. If you are ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. The fact is if you love someone, you will lose someone or they will lose you. So says my guest today, Colin Campbell. Colin has written a book called finding the words, working through profound loss with hope and purpose. Colin explains that love and loss are inextricably linked, that grief is a universal human experience, and that we all feel the pain of loss, that we're taught about love from the day we're born and yet death and grief are kept shrouded in mystery. Colin wrote this book in the hopes of making grief less frightening, mysterious, and lonely for those of us who suddenly find themselves on this difficult journey. I was interested to read this book because I am interested in the question what does it mean to live a good life? And how can we do it? And grief is something that we don't want to face. Uh, We hope we never do. When we do, we often don't have a roadmap for it. We don't have a model of how to do this in a healthy way, uh, an effective way, that kind of thing. But uh, I discovered Colin's book I began reading it. And I was deeply moved. I found myself moved to tears on more than one occasion. And I believe that whether you are currently in grief, whether you're grieving, whether you are not, or whether you love someone who is this book can be helpful. Uh, It's full of practices and ideas to help you not only make sense of but to move forward in life to engage deeply with life, and maybe even to find meaning and purpose uh, on the other side or alongside the grief that you might be experiencing. So with that, I hope you find something valuable, something meaningful in this conversation uh, with my new friend, Colin Campbell. You can learn more about Colin and his work at ColinCampbellAuthor.com, or you can find him on Instagram at ColinCampbellWriter on Instagram. So with that, uh, please enjoy, and I hope you benefit from this conversation. Colin, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Will you tell me, please, What is life about? Well, I think part of life for me
0: is, you know, the search for purpose and meaning. I think Mm -hmm. that's really, um, I think that because that in turn, in my mind, leads to happiness, leads to fulfillment, leads to a a sense of joy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Uh, We're going to talk a lot more about this, but I thought maybe a, a good place to just open this conversation is, if you will, please, will you tell me? about your children, will you tell me about Ruby and Hart?
0: Yeah, thank you for asking. So uh, Ruby, uh, well, should I just say the background of where they're at right now, the fact that they were killed? (laughs) I don't know if that's something I should lead in with in case your listeners are um, gonna get shocked by the reveal. But uh, so Ruby was killed when she was 17, and Hart was killed when he was 14, and this is 2019, when we were struck by a drunken high driver. so, so, describing them is describing them when they were 17 and 14, uh, and they were pretty spectacular kids. You know, I, I like to say that every, every parent thinks their kid was the greatest, but actually mine were the greatest, actually, <laughs> objectively. Um, but no, they, they, were, they, were, they were incredibly kind. That was the first word that comes to mind when thinking about Ruby and Hart. But uh, Ruby was like a clown. He was like a class clown with a heart. Uh, he was always down for making a joke and creating a, a wonderfully ridiculous and hilarious character. So, he was like, he was an amazingly gifted <laughs> performer. Um, he would just launch into these characters full body and, and he would have all of his friends and stitches. Um, kind of nonstop. <laughs> kind of too much, actually. <laughs> like mm-hmm. at the dinner table. <laughs> like, stop it, Hart. Just eat your food like a regular person, not like <laughs> a character. Um, but he was, he was hilarious. But always always kind, always interested in being helpful to other people, which is really beautiful. Um, and Ruby was an amazing artist. She discovered it kind of late in life, her artwork. She w- didn't, wouldn't do much art as a young kid, but around 15, she kind of discovered it. She struggled with OCD and depression and suicidality. And in sort of her darker moments, she discovered art as a way of processing her feelings mm. and that was sort of like a lifeline for her. And mm-hmm. she really just seized on it, uh, and then loved it. And she was she was uh, she was like an autodidact. She would just absorb lessons from the internet, and then go. You know, so she discovered watercolors, and then suddenly it was amazing. And pencil drawing, and crayons, and color pencils, and ink, and uh, and paint. Uh, and so it was wonderful to see her artistic self explode. And animation too. She just she created animation sequences and so inspired I like to talk about her the main character that she was developing was a Jewish lesbian vampire who fights Nazis and she was so thrilled with the idea of a Jewish vampire because of course the classic idea is that a vampire and, and you, you put a cross up and they go ah the cross and she's like that wouldn't happen to a Jewish vampire <laughs> I don't care about a cross <laughs> so she loved that idea
1: yeah mm-hmm. and as you said they were killed in a crash uh, yeah. You were in the vehicle and your wife, your wife, your yeah. wife Gail, as I understand.
0: Yes. Yes. We and, were both in the front seat. Yeah. What we happened? Were, well, we were, we were going to Joshua Tree. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, we live in Los Angeles and Joshua Tree is a very sweet little town uh, in the high desert, about two and a half hours east of Los Angeles. And it's right next to Joshua Tree National Park, which is this enormous, it's about the size of Rhode Island, the size mm-hmm. of this park. It's enormous and spectacular with amazing rock formations, so fun to just scramble up. And we had been scrambling up them for years, years and years, all four of us, we loved it. Uh, and that's what we said, let's scramble up these rocks and we just climbed these amazing rocks. Um, and we were on our way to that town uh, and we were struck by a driver who was, as I said, drunk and high and speeding going 40 miles an hour above the, the freeway speed limit. Um, and uh and we were t-boned so uh in that scenario you know seat belts don't don't really actually help you uh when you're t-boned um because the force of impact is so powerful that you know um you're killed in the back seat um yeah
1: (laughs) yeah and as you you mentioned so you've written a book where you share very honestly very raw rawly uh of your experience of, of that night and the subsequent journey of grief, this book, finding the words, working through profound loss with hope and purpose. Uh, And I'll tell you, I have not lost, I lost a father 14 years ago, but certainly mm. have not experienced a profound loss like you Mm. have. And you, I read the entire book. I cried at multiple uh, times. (laughs) I'm I'm grateful to you for writing it. Uh, And there's so many distinctions and actions and practices and rituals and so forth but I'm getting maybe a little ahead of myself there. Uh, I'm wondering if maybe we can start with this idea of profound loss. So I thought yeah. your your um, explanation of what that is uh, is uh, very powerful, but will you tell me you. please, what is what is profound loss?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for for pointing that out. Because I think a lot of people, um, you know, I reacted to your statement, you lost your father, but it's not a profound loss. And I was going to jump right in and say, well, wait a minute. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> um, and so, uh, I think there's a lot of comparisons of losses, you know. I think yeah. people just naturally say, "Oh, your loss is is more more profound than mine or I don't I'm not allowed to grieve." Um, and and I really believe that what's a profound loss is one that you define as profound. You the you the griever, you're the one that knows how important this this creature was to you, right? Yeah. Um, and so any loss can be a profound loss if it's profound to the person who's grieving, if it really sure. rocks their sense of identity. So, you know, even a pet, I think a lot of people with, with pets, um, they feel like they're not allowed to grieve, you know, because uh, it's quote unquote, just a pet. But if that pet is a central part of your identity, yeah. you know, if, if part of how you define yourself is the, the, the relation to your pet and then the pet dies, that's a, that's a, a blow to your identity. That's a profound loss, uh, absolutely.
1: Yeah, that idea. And I think I'm so fascinated. Um, you know, as a, as a coach, one who trains coaches, one who receives coaching, th- mm-hmm. that identity to me is one of these things that we, we, we often live without really thinking a, a lot about. It's almost like the skim right? It's there. It keeps everything in. We couldn't live without it, but we don't think about it until it's been somehow traumatized or violated or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and this, this distinction of uh, profound loss is something that causes us to like reorganize, to have to reorganize our identity. Yeah, That's, that's pretty remarkable. Oh, um, thank you. And so I'm, I'm grateful to you for explaining that. But let me ask more broadly, um, who did you write this for? and what uh, did you hope it would do for them?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I wrote it for for a couple of, of different groups of people um, to varying degrees. So I think I, I started writing it for myself. I started writing it so I could just process my own loss. Um, it was so overwhelming and so confusing. And that when I found when I started to write about it, it helped me organize my thoughts about it and helped me to literally be allowed to live alongside it in a different way. Um, mm. But I also very much wrote it for other people in grief <clears throat> who, who were struggling um, with, with specifically how to find community in grief, um, mm. but also just in general, struggling with grief. I, I found that um, it was in a lot of grief group circles, um, and many times people in the circle would say things like, Oh, you're going to lose most of your friends and family to grief because they're going to abandon you. Mm. And it was such, uh, it was so prevalent. So many people said that. Um, and it was so shocking to me and my wife, Gail. Um, the idea of losing our community on top of Ruby and heart it seemed like a heartbreak um, mm. beyond <laughs> beyond there already our broken hearts. Um, and we could see that these other people in grief were really struggling with that. Really, it was really um, embittering and isolating. And, Gail and i thought to ourselves well, we don't want to lose our friends and family also we need them my yeah. god we need them to help us um and maybe because we're, we have a theater background or we're just i don't know comfortable <laughs> um reaching out to people but we found ourselves proactively reaching out to our community um in a very specific way uh to help them help us yeah and a sort of a light bulb went off in my mind thinking this this could be something that I could give to other people in grieving who maybe were struggling with isolation, where we're struggling with ways in which they could find the words to express their own grief and also their own grief needs, uh, hence mm. the title Find the Words. It's actually about the griever finding their own words, not people comforting grievers. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, so, so that that was another reason why I wrote the book. And then, And then finally, I also wrote it because I felt like as a culture, the, the messages that I received from the, the larger culture about grief felt so wrong and off to me now that I'm a griever. Um, I had such so many misconceptions about grief. To my mind, I thought the grief was, you know, you, you, you go away all by yourself in a corner feeling really, really sad. <laughs> and then after some certain amount of time passes, you're fixed and you come back to society. And suddenly I realized that's not at all. That's actually the opposite. <laughs> because you don't go away and get better. You need to be you need, don't need to be, but it helps to get better in community yeah. um, in order to, to process my grief. I, I felt the need to discuss it with friends and family. Um, and so that idea that, that maybe we could, we could upend some cultural misconceptions about grief also animated my desire to write the book.
1: Mm. What are some of the other misconceptions? What are some of the other things that we either get wrong or we just don't understand about grief and the grieving process?
0: yeah um well i I think one important thing is that people who are you know faced with the challenge of helping other people who are in grief i think there's a there's a thought of like what can i say to these people that's going to comfort them that's going to take away their pain Mm -hmm. right how am i going to make them feel better and it feels such an overwhelming thing what words can i say to fix this but actually that's not what grievers need from their community they don't need to be fixed they don't need their pain taken away they need their pain to be accompanied Mm-hmm. They need to be in community with people who are willing to stay with them in their grief and loss and allow them to feel and express their pain, not get it taken away.
1: Yeah, that, that's one of the points in the book where I cried. I was so deeply mm-hmm. moved is what you shared about, and I know you mentioned the doctor's name, but after oh, yeah. the crash, when it was clear your children had died. Mm-hmm there was a it sounded like you and and Gail had a very powerful experience with this very empathetic doctor will you say will you share that
0: yeah absolutely so uh this is mind of the this is the first hours after the after the car crash that killed and Hart and so we're in shock um and and you know almost unable to process what's happening to us right in the moment but I did notice a lot of people once we got to the hospital so so basically in my mind, Ruby and Hart were, were killed on impact, but they were um, they were CPR conducted and then they, they were whisked away in ambulances. Uh, and then ultimately, Ruby Hart sorry, Hart was flown to a second hospital with a PICU unit, a pediatric intensive care unit, as they attempted to keep him alive. But uh, but um, so we were then taken to a hospital as well. We were taken to the same hospital that Ruby was at her body was in uh, because we, of course, were also hurt in the crash and i i got the feeling that everybody was tiptoeing around us and didn't want to tell us the truth what was actually Mm. happening um and there was even i spotted a social worker i knew this person was a social worker and yet they avoided us they did not want to come and tell us the news wow i I, then i was thinking like wait isn't that your job like i Mm. know part of my brain knows that ruby's dead i saw her i held her hand while they gave her cpr for 20 minutes there was no breathing there was no pulse I, I, I know she's dead, but nobody's telling me that. <laughs> it was such a surreal thing. And then finally, a doctor came forward and told us that, in fact, Ruby had died um, and that, that we needed to leave immediately and go to the other hospital to get to heart. Um, and he didn't say to say goodbye to Hart. <laughs> he just said, you need to go now. I'm releasing you, even though you still have these injuries and I would normally keep you. And so, part of us again are like, wait a minute, why is he doing that? It's because heart is dying, but no one's saying it. And we get to the second hospital and the, the intake people don't tell us. And there's a ther- there's a social worker who pulls us aside and doesn't tell us <laughs> even though that's their job. And finally, this doctor, Dr. Uh, Ejike, I believe that's how she pronounces her name. She came in and she sat us down and she said the truth that uh, that of course we knew that Ruby was dead and that heart had died of three life ending injuries. So, there was no way to help save him. Like, th- th- he had three separate injuries, all of which were killing him, So killed him. And he, she said that they're keeping him, you know, alive uh, on life support long enough for us to say goodbye, and then they're going to have to pull the, pull the plug. Well, she didn't use the word phrase. She didn't phrase. She didn't use the word pull the plug. But, um, but then she said, tell me about Ruby and Hart. And that was this extraordinary moment. Because instead of backing away from our pain and just uh, – uh, leaving us alone she sat with us and leaned in and invited us to share our agony and pain Um, and that was such an amazingly brave moment and it also taught me how valuable it is words how words are so valuable in that moment instead of wailing impotently we had suddenly a task we could talk about our beautiful children to this woman who wanted to hear about them Mm -hmm. and it was such a, a beautiful way to handle the most excruciating moment of my life
1: wow yeah, it's such a powerful lesson. Um, one, you know, for coaches, certainly anyone who's in the, the healing or serving arts of recognizing that people don't need to be fixed. What is mm. pain doesn't need to be removed. You know, it's not your job necessarily to remove it, but to just be with what is, mm. you know, yeah. um, that. And then also this reality of many people they just don't know what to say i think they don't know how to act and and then what you just said about sharing when you did you know this doctor that asks you the question and gives you this opening to to act and and i love this sentence in your book the surest path out of despair is by transforming our pain and loss into physical action Mm. and and the fact that then you are able in that moment that physical action is to talk is to share yeah. And then this thing too, and it's right in the title of the book, right? Finding the words where you talk about when so many people thinking they were doing well, showing you love or compassion or whatever, saying there are no words, there are no words. Like over mm. and over, you heard that. Yeah. yeah. Right. But and, and if you'll please talk about this, but, but how, what that actually does is create a gulf, right? Mm. Yeah. Because if there are no words, there's no point in talking and then there's no connection and so forth. So, yeah. you just share a little bit about because i wouldn't have experienced that i i, like, yeah. I wouldn't have expected that
0: yeah yeah uh, i certainly didn't expect it so uh so i, I do i do want to preface that some people in grief do i've heard back from people who grieve who they write me notes and say well actually i liked it when people said there are no words and every griever has their own experience with different phrases and things that tip you know set them off um and I don't want to shame people who are trying. Right, all sure. these people that that said these phrases to me, they I understood where it came from. They came from a place of love. They're trying mm-hmm. to say, um, basically, that the anguish that I that I that, that I'm feeling that, that they they there's no words that are adequate to express their mm-hmm. love for me and and the devastation that has been wrought upon me. And so, so that sort of comes from a beautiful place, a place of of trying to be empathetic and connecting. And so and I appreciated them in that moment. I, I never shamed anybody for saying that phrase to me. Um, however, after about a hundred, literally a hundred people have said it to me over and over again, I suddenly started to wonder about it. I was like, "Wait a minute, what, what's happening here?" When they say this phrase, and usually it was the end of the conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, there are no words. You know, hand over the heart, sad nod, and then goodbye, <laughs> goodbye. And actually, I was like, "Wait a minute." I want words. I need words. Yeah. I need words because otherwise, how am I going to process this? How am I going to understand what's happening to me? And how am I going to not feel terribly alone if everybody's saying there are no words, goodbye, <laughs> good luck yeah. to you. And yeah. so it suddenly became an emblem for me of everything that's wrong with how we treat grief, because I think it, you know, at some point, somehow all these adults learn this phrase, right? Nice. Nobody sat down and taught us that this is what you do, right? Yeah. If someone loses their children or even two children, well, definitely just say there are no words and then get out because <laughs> yeah. what are you going to say, right? But actually, you know, this doctor found the words by just asking us a simple question. You know, it wasn't even a question, it was just a statement, you know, you know t- tell me about Ruby and Heart. Um, tell me about your grief, essentially, right? Uh, mm-hmm. It's such a beautiful opening. Yeah. So, uh, so, I would hope that we could find openings to, for dialogue. And the words don't have to be perfect. We're not looking for the right words to solve right. anything or fix anything. We're just, we just need to talk about what's happening in order to understand it.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And part of what really impressed me about your book um, is the lesson that you shared. And it came up in a few forms at different times about asking for what you want, telling mm. people you know, what you needed or what you wanted. Uh, and there's a a few versions of that, but will you, maybe the opening to that conversation is maybe it's the grief spiel. Will you talk Uh about what that is and and why you came up with it and what result it had?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) The grief spiel. So basically, uh, so I'm not Jewish. But my wife Gail is Jewish. We raised Ruby and Hart as Jews. They were born bat mitzvahed, and we are active members of our temple, which is called Ikar. It's in Los Angeles. It's a beautiful, very socially active, socially progressive temple, all about social justice, um, with an amazing rabbi, Sharon Browse, um, who really held our hands, literally, and figuratively held our hands through all these most excruciating moments of our grief. Uh, and I'm, I will be forever grateful for that uh, and the whole temple community, honestly. But um, but So, uh, so uh, Jews, they, they, uh, they sit Shiva. So, for the first seven nights after the funeral, your community is supposed to come to your house and sit with you, hence sitting Shiva. And, um, and I found, initially, I didn't want that. <laughs> I wanted to be left alone. <laughs> this horrible tragedy has happened to me. What do you mean people are coming to my house? But I had learned to just trust the Jews. <laughs> that was my motto in my head, right? Like, Jews have been mourning for 5,000 years. I bet they've got it right by now. I'm just gonna <laughs> listen to the Jews. I'm gonna do whatever my rabbi says. <laughs> and so, cause I didn't know, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing right now, right? I'm terrified. Right, cause
1: and, for context maybe.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: You're atheist.
0: Correct, I was atheist, I'm atheist. I was raised by atheists um, and we had no cultural uh, traditions surrounding mourning or grieving um, in my household. Uh, I, I say that we're grief-averse, <laughs> that's how I describe my family. <laughs> we kind of just avoid it. Um, it's not something we lean into. Uh, but now suddenly I needed to. I needed to lean mm. into it. I couldn't, I couldn't compartmentalize this, right? Uh, I had to deal with it. And so, what I discovered from Shiva was I actually, I loved having people come to my house ultimately because, well, maybe love is the wrong word, but it felt so helpful because mm. my rabbi, Sharon would turn to us and say, do you want to say anything to all these people, all these friends and family who've gathered here? And suddenly, Gail and I discovered why, yes, we do. <laughs> in mm-hmm. fact, we do want to say all sorts of things. We want to talk about our grief, what's, what's happening to us, and also about Ruby and Heart. We wanted to tell Ruby and Heart stories. And then we discovered that they wanted to tell Ruby and Heart stories. So we would invite them to come up. And so, Ruby and Heart's friends would come up in, in, in groups of two or three or four, and they would talk. this entire assembled crowd of 150 people about ruby and heart it was so beautiful um so meaningful for all of us and that that set off a light bulb in my brain about like oh talking about grief is helpful (laughs) uh being in community is helpful and then shiva ended and then people friends would come to our house and suddenly they wouldn't know what to say yeah the structure of shiva was gone and suddenly people would come in and they would be afraid to say hi They'd be afraid to mention Ruby and Hart's names because they were scared they might trigger us, you know, might mm-hmm. cause us more pain. Because sure enough, if they said Ruby and Hart, I might tear up, I might cry. Yeah. But that's not a bad thing because I'm grieving their deaths. So, uh, so Gail and I just developed this sh- spiel, this grief spiel. We'd pull people aside one at a time and tell them, here's the deal. We do need to talk about Ruby and Hart. We need to hear their names. We need you to tell us stories about Ruby and Hart, and listen to us as we talk to you about our grief and pain, what we're feeling right now, today, because it changes hour to hour. Yeah. And it and it's so confusing. You're in the whirlwind of early acute grief is so overwhelming. The chance to talk about it is so valuable, um, and our friends wanted to do wanted to help us, but didn't know how. Yeah. And so, the grief spiel, they were like, oh, thank you. Thank you for telling me what you need, because I had no idea. And so, that taught us a valuable lesson of, oh, this is a good thing. This helps them, helps us. Everybody's helped. And that gave us the courage to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Keep asking for what we needed.
1: Yeah, that's that's powerful. And, and, you know, again, not having been through profound loss, loss of children this way and had... I can imagine just knowing myself, I think I would, I would be, I would retreat <laughs> into yeah. the isolation. And, right. and, and meanwhile, there'd be people who wanted to express care and, and love and concern and, and help and so forth. And, and I wouldn't necessarily know how to do that. But this, uh, model of, you know, a spiel and being able to talk mm-hmm. to people directly one on one is. Is useful and it's not the only time, right? Like I understand when, mm-hmm. and maybe you've done this in professional settings, but you share actually an email that Gail yeah. sent colleagues uh, yeah. that's along this line, but it was maybe to two hundred people. Yeah. What? How yeah. did? How? What was that like? What? What happened there?
0: Well, well, as you say, that you know the grief spiel, it it kept evolving and kept changing because we kept expanding our our return to society. So first mm-hmm. it was just our friends coming to our house, but then we'd go out into the world and we'd have to. Interact with the world, and and it feels so it feels so alienating. Uh, if you say go back to work, and nobody talks about it because they don't want to upset you, yeah. But that seems like you're going crazy. Nobody's mentioning. My kids were just murdered. Nobody's going to say anything, <laughs> yeah. but everyone's terrified because if they say something, it might really upset you. So I'm not going to say anything. And so uh, we start. We started to realize if we give people a heads up, if we tell people ahead of time what we need, we can avoid a lot of very potentially painful and alienating moments um, for ourselves, just to protect ourselves, literally. Um, and also we, we found suddenly we were learning that we did not like hearing people say they're in a better place, God called them, they're angels in heaven. That did not help Gail and I. And I, and I feel like the beauty of the Greek spiel is that it's, it's individual. You get to say mm-hmm. exactly what you, the individual, and maybe Maybe you love to hear those phrases. Great. Then you can, that could be your grief spiel. Please tell me they're angels in heaven. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's all individualized. What What do you need as a griever? <laughs> um, and we needed to have people not mention those things, um, even though we knew it, they came from a place of love. That That's just, that's fine, but tell somebody else. <laughs> and uh, And so we could put those in our spiels as well. Um, but yeah, the the, the idea is ultimately to take away that taboo, that feeling of like, oh, we better not talk about it because the result is that it feels like there's this elephant in the room, yeah. this enormous elephant, and everybody feels awkward. It doesn't feel good for anybody you know, yeah. to, de- to deny this terrible thing has happened.
1: Yeah, a- absolutely. And to see that again, whether it was with a group of friends or one mm-hmm. particular friend that would yeah. always kind of tell you how you felt, Right, yeah, and and yeah. then to be able to again and again, whether it was with your close friends, people at work, these groups of friends on Zoom, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Um, I, I'm as I've said, I'm just impressed by and inspired, even not in a grieving context. But I imagine people could use this, whether it's after they've divorced someone or whether oh, they've yeah. transitioned in some way, you know. Absolutely. Okay, hey, here's who you know. What's going on with me? Here's what I would like, and mm-hmm. it's not. It doesn't have to be confrontational. It could just be. You know, a request, communication request. I think that's yeah. really powerful.
0: Well, well, I think I think it is. I agree completely. And I think that um, part part of the impulse was if if a friend was you know quote letting us down or saying quote the wrong thing for us, the first instinct was I'm going to write them off, right? Forget it. I'm done with them. Yeah. But then it was like, wait a minute. You know, how do they know what to do? How do they know what the right thing to do is? I never told them. Yeah. And I thought. I thought about myself, because I I'm come from a grief averse family, I would definitely do it wrong, you know? I no. was not a great friend to other people who are grieving any kind of loss. Um, and then my eyes were opened and I was like, oh, I see what's happening here <laughs> once I lost, once I'd suffered a, a profound loss. And so I had a, a, an immense amount of, I continue to have an immense amount of, of empathy for people who are struggling to to be my friend in grief. Because I know that I would have definitely, hundred percent, not been a good friend to somebody yeah. in grieving. So, uh, so I, I find it. It still happens. In fact, it was just like a couple of weeks ago, I I had lunch with a friend, and we had had a real struggle in which they just didn't know how to reach out to me, and they were in a different coast. And suddenly, it was like, let me tell you exactly what how what's happening here. And they were like, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. I was trying to do this thing because I thought you wanted this. And I was like, no, actually that's, that's not helpful. This is helpful. And it was great. And suddenly yeah. it was just a wonderful connection. And I was like, I'm so grateful that I didn't write them off. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm so grateful to have this person still in my circle of friendship because it would have been so easy to be like, forget them. They don't yeah. get it. They don't get grief. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah.
1: That's, that's great. You uh, talking about action, right? As a way of dealing with processing um, grief, or you write in the book that early on, like maybe immediately after you lost Ruby and Hart, that you made a decision just to say yes <laughs> to every <laughs> invitation, whether yeah. you felt like it or not, which you probably didn't feel like it, but you did it anyway. Tell me about that decision to say yes and and how it played out. Yeah,
0: yeah. So it was it was definitely an extreme thing. It might not be right for everybody, <laughs> but it was right for me because I really wanted to say no to everything. I wanted to curl up in a ball in my house and not interact with anybody. And in fact, the idea of making plans was so difficult because it was like, someone wants to meet me tomorrow. How am I gonna feel tomorrow? I, I don't know how I'm yeah. gonna feel in an hour. Yeah. So I better say no, right? To protect myself, I better just say no to any kind of invitation because I, I can't know how I'll feel. Mm-hmm because it seems so touch and go right now. But then I thought, well, actually every time I do say yes and I do something with a friend, almost every time it's it's been helpful to me. Mm-hmm. And so I just developed the shorthand of just saying yes to everything. It was also very hard to make decisions, no. especially in early grief. I really, I couldn't make, what do you want for lunch? I don't know, I don't I don't want anything. <laughs> I don't wanna eat, you know what I mean? No. I, I, no, I can't make a decision. And so it helped me just to say yes, everything. Yes, 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 yes. Like offers (laughs) of help, right? Let's do, do you want to take a walk? Yes. (laughs) Do you want to go, you know, one person said, do you want to go skeet shooting? I've never gone skeet shooting. I said, (laughs) yes, I didn't even know quite what it was. (laughs) Yes. I want to do that. (laughs) Do you want to go to a new park you've never been in? Yes. Do you want to walk the dog? Yes. Do you want to Mm -hmm. read this book? Yes. Do you want to do grief yoga? Yes, 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 yes. Mm. Even though I always wanted to say no, yeah, and uh, sometimes the experiences were challenging, and I didn't, I did not enjoy them, <laughs> but it was still it was something. I was engaging in life ultimately, yeah. And 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 my sister in law, she said something interesting um, about about those the idea to say yes. It wasn't that I was actually looking for like a good time, right? Mm-hmm. I wasn't like trying to have fun, but I was saying yes to life. Mm-hmm. I was saying, I don't want to live without Ruby and Hart right now because I don't want to do anything without them, but I'm going to try because that is an act of hope. And then that's going to bring me back into life slowly.
1: Wow. it's a, that's a pretty profound way. I think of looking at that and really beautiful too, because mm. there is a choice, right? And it reminds me of that quote, I'm um, won't get it quite right but the thing uh abraham maslow said about there's a choice to retreat or to move forward every day and the choice must be Mm. made again and again yeah and there you were whatever that was some version of some aspect of you was moving to re-engage with life
0: engage with life yeah yep i I think that's so true that decision happens again and again do i do this or not do i yeah. yeah do i engage with life or do i retreat yeah
1: Yeah. And you, maybe this, uh, thing about like uh, early on, maybe more than now, but I would imagine to some degree, uh, you use a description in the book, uh, you call it a grief tax. Yeah. Something, well, you talk about what is a grief tax?
0: (laughs) Well, I got it from some book. I've read lots of books about grief and I got something from all of them. Um, and I don't even remember where I got this book, where I got the grief tax from. Um, but uh, that's terrible not to attribute it but um the idea that uh everything just takes more there's a grief tax on your life so everything's harder uh you're not able to get nearly as much done in a day because there's a chunk of your life chunk of your brain a chunk of your heart that's just in grief that's just spending grief time yeah (laughs) um there's like a, a drag on your system and I think, I think you're right. It does lessen over time, the grief tax. Um, But I think the idea of it is to be kind to yourself in grief, to Mm -hmm. acknowledge it and be like, you know what, actually the, the reason why I'm not being so productive right now Mm -hmm. is because there's 20% of my brain and heart are are spent in grief and that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah, I can even, even now I feel that way. Definitely. Like, Yep, I'm not going to do that much today because I'm also
1: grieving. Yeah, I can see how having that as a concept, like understanding that it could help one to be much more compassionate toward oneself.
0: Yeah. For sure.
1: Yeah. And um, along with this, you talk about, uh, I really appreciated your statement about um, time doesn't heal the pain. But mm-hmm. time allows our hearts to expand so that there is space for more than just that pain yeah. you talk about i don't i don't know how i'd say it the myth or the misconception of healing versus yeah. making space for
0: yeah so i i personally I, I i didn't love the word healing in relation to my loss mm-hmm. some people like it and some people are grieving they think about healing but for me healing had connotations of i will eventually be healed So I will eventually get over the loss of Ruby and heart. Mm -hmm. And that was struck me as not true. (laughs) Um, I'll always have these gaping holes in my heart. I've got two gaping holes in my heart Um, and they're not going away. They're not shrinking. (laughs) Um, They cause me a lot of pain every day. Um, But I also feel like I'm every day more and more in this life that we're living here. um, And, and i like that. I want to be in this life. Um, and so I do feel like my heart is growing, uh, and I'm opening myself up to other experiences, other loves and, um, and that sort of, that imagery kind of helps me that idea that I'm not healing. I'm just growing around it, uh, growing around these holes and finding more and more space for other emotions. So Mm -hmm. in early grief, I really didn't have much space for anything, but, but grief and loss. And it seems inconceivable that I would, that I would be able to look at a sunset and feel anything other than, than anguish, yeah. honestly. And now I can look at a sunset and feel some solace and some, you know, maybe joy, happiness, and then also aching yeah. alongside it.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's, that's powerful. Well, and in your book, you offer a lot of uh, practices uh, a lot of ideas, but really some practices and a lot of journal prompts uh, that I imagine someone who's grieving could really benefit from. Uh, and some of them, sometimes, uh, admittedly not having gone through this, seemed a little contradictory. Which maybe they are, ah, right? Hello, but different, different um, practices for different moments. And and I'd love if you yeah. talk about that. And the ones I'm thinking of in particular, uh, one is the hate du jour. Yes,
2: <laughs> versus.
1: Yeah the random act of kindness
0: yeah 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 so both of those are in the chapter on on rage and i feel like i think i share with people who are grieving profound losses a lot of rage at the universe i i'd imagine it's a universal feeling i don't know but it seems pretty common to all the people that i've talked to that you know something terrible has happened some this is a tragedy the universe has taken away something uh, from the world, from us and from the world. And it seems like rage is an appropriate response, but can be very destructive response. Um, I don't want to hurt. I don't want to lash out at at my friends and family. I don't want to lash out at strangers, but I do have a lot of anger (laughs) and it, and it comes out at moments. It, It overwhelms me. And I'm not that great with anger. I'm not that comfortable. It feels out of control, scary to me. Um, and, and so, Gail and I found uh, two different things that sort of helped us, and and they are contradictory in the sense that they are they do seem like they're in different directions. One, the hate du jour, is um, it's again something that, that my sister in law Betsy the, she coined the phrase, but um, it was uh, we would we would tell each other um, who pissed us off that day. Gail and I It would be our hate du jour, and usually we would just we would just go off on this person, um, and and in a delightful way. Not in like, a, oh, I'm so angry, but just like, in a, ah, I'm going to tear them to shreds <laughs> in a privacy of our, of our own kitchen, right? Mm-hmm. Not to the person's face. They'll, they'll right. never know that, we, that they were the hate du jour. And we kind of discovered that almost if they were, the more innocent they were, the, the, the more helpful it was for us to just like go off on this person. You know, They looked at us with a little bit too much pity. Oh, yeah, you want pity? And then we'd go off on this whole stream <laughs> about um, entertaining each other. So it was like a playful way of getting out a lot of rage that didn't hurt anybody. You mm-hmm. know? Um, uh, yes. Yeah, so that was our hate to jour. journal about it too. So we journal our hate to Uh Gail called it her, her burn book of grief. <laughs> she would just go mm-hmm. off at all these people. Um, but, uh, but the other side is a much more positive approach, which we also employ um, which is the random acts of kindness that if we're feeling particularly angry and bitter, if I'm driving, I'm behind the wheel of a car and I'm just feeling so much rage, and I just let somebody in in front of me, kindly, and they get a little friendly wave or not, it's like, oh, I did something nice to this stranger, I let them into this mm-hmm. traffic, they want to go here, I let them in and that makes you feel good. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, I let a motorcyclist go by, I move to the side so the motor- motorcyclist can go by, I often get a little a peace sign flashed at me and I'm like, yeah, I did something nice for some stranger. They, they're appreciative, I'm appreciative, and in a way, I'm faking it till I make it with kindness. I don't yeah. feel kind, but if I act kind, I start to feel kind, and, I, and then that makes me feel good as, a way to, as an antidote to rage, yeah. as, a, as a way to handle that rage. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and part, part, of what, uh, part of what I'm impressed by with that, again, not like it's the solution, Right, it's right. not this simple fix to, to everything, but I think there's first of all a pretty high level of self awareness in mm-hmm. you know what's going on inside you, how you're feeling, what you want to do, but what you, and then the emotional intelligence to make choices that are mm-hmm. healthy, constructive, right, productive, whatever. <laughs> yeah. So I just wanted to just wanted to acknowledge that. Oh, um, let's see, we've I get, talked. To, I get
0: it from my kids. Yes, <laughs> because <laughs> they were so kind
1: yeah that's right in fact talk about that what you did with the the hart campbell kindness award
0: oh yeah 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 um so we were looking for some way uh to honor hart at his school and a lot of his friends he had had a circle of amazing beautiful friends they call themselves mouse (laughs) screaming this circle of crazy artistic wonderful children um uh boys and girls and uh, gay and straight and bisexual. There was a wonderful array of, of, of friends that he had. It was so beautiful. And they created these bracelets that said, Heart and Ruby gone, but but not forgotten. Mm-hmm. Um, these beautiful bracelets to raise money for the Trevor Foundation, which is an organization that supports LGBTQ youth who are struggling with suicidality, which Ruby was uh, when she was younger. Uh, not, not at the end, but when she was younger, she definitely did. And so, Uh, And and she was lesbian. So, that felt like a beautiful, beautiful tribute to both Hart and Ruby, because Hart was also a a fierce ally for Ruby, LGBTQ plus ally. And so, I thought it was a great, great, beautiful way to go. And then I suddenly thought like, Hart was so kind, his friends are so kind, let's do um, a a kindness award Mm -hmm. at his school. Uh, and again, with my sister-in-law, Betsy, <laughs> she comes up a lot here, but uh, she wanted to give the money to fund it. Um, and it's a ridiculous story about how we came up to the money. I don't know if we have having the time to discuss the ridiculous story about about uh, the $400. Sure. Yeah, sure. Okay. okay. <laughs> so what happened was um, it was a tough time in our family because Ruby was struggling with suicidality, as I said. And Gail and I had to actually, we briefly moved into an apartment um, in in on the west side to help be close to her to getting her um, mental health help uh, near UCLA, the clinic. And we asked um, Betsy, Gail's sister, to stay with us, stay at our home and get Hart to school um, and and Hart wasn't feeling well because of course he was grieving. His sister was struggling emotionally. It was really upsetting to him and he didn't want to go to school. And so Betsy said, "I'll give you four hundred bucks if you go to school." Oh yeah, because she was she was panicked. She was like, "My one job is to get Hart to school. How can I let you know Galen Galen Collin down? I've got to get him to school." So she she tried to bribe him, and he said, "No." He said, "No, I don't want four hundred bucks. I don't feel well." Wow. But then around around noon, she's he's like, "Well, I kind of feel better now. I'll take the four hundred bucks." And <laughs> she said, "Well, the school day is half over." How about two hundred bucks? He said, "Okay, deal." And she just to so never <laughs> tell your parents. We never did, and so I found out the first, the second night of Shiva. I found out because uh, Betsy confessed what had happened <laughs> um, uh, posthumously. So, um, uh, so we decided it will be four hundred dollars. Will be the 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 award for kindness. And the deal is, you have to nominate somebody else. So you have to mm-hmm. see somebody else do something kind on campus. His, his, uh, his middle school and high school is called Campbell Hall. Coincidentally, his last name, but no relation, but um, if you see somebody else do something kind, then you nominate them. And then the nominations come in at the end of the year, you know, they pick somebody to win um, and they get $200 to themselves and then $200 to give to their favorite charity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and at first the school was like, wait a minute, they're an Episcopalian school. And so they're like, you can't reward kindness with money. That's not right. That's not, that doesn't sound right. And I get where they're coming from. Like, absolutely. Don't pay people to be kind. Kindness is its own reward. However, (laughs) I love the idea of being inappropriate because Hart was definitely inappropriate. Um, and he would love this idea of getting cash monies. And so, uh, so yeah, so that we convinced them that it was going to be okay to give money for kindness.
1: That's awesome. That's yeah. great. Well, yeah. what a neat. I mean, one of many ways you found to honor and and tribute your children. That's it's, it's uh, fun. Thank you. So we have, man. We've talked about a lot, and as I mentioned before we started recording, uh, there's a few other parts of this interview I would love to to do one about creativity and writing toward the end. This one yeah. about uh, the enlightening, lightning round. But before we transition to those, uh, let me ask you, what haven't we talked about? Either anything that's in the book, maybe that's come up since the book or that you didn't put in the book in the first place that yeah. you think would be uh, valuable for the listener, people watching, or just that you yeah. want to talk about?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I guess I guess it's too, one, one thing that I've been thinking about a lot just this morning, I was thinking about, and we touched on it a little bit already, Um, But the idea of how do do you be a friend to somebody in grief, Mm -hmm. um, I think it's such an interesting and challenging question. Um, I I guess I already touched on it. The idea that is that that our job in supporting people in grief is not to take away their pain, not to comfort them, but actually to be with them. Um, But I guess now we already talked about that. (laughs) The other thing I want to talk about, which we haven't mentioned, it is in my book, is about leaning into the pain. Mm I think that's a lesson that I think is applicable to all of life.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I think so much of what gets us into trouble in the world <laughs> is avoiding the pain of life. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's what leads to a lot of drug and alcohol addictions mm-hmm. or numbing or, you know, toxic relationships is cause we're trying to, we're trying to avoid the uncomfortable, the discomfortable, the discomfort. Um, and, uh, and so I, I, found early on, I, I, if I was avoiding the pain of their loss, I was going to have to avoid the memories of them because any memory of them was painful. Mm-hmm. Anytime I thought about Ruby Hart, Hart, it, it caused me a lot of pain, mm-hmm. but I didn't want to avoid them and their memories. So I, I discovered that uh, leaning into the pain was actually very helpful to me. Um, and obviously, you don't lean into the pain all the time because that would be insufferable. <laughs> but, but, um, but when given the option, almost always, I'm going to choose to lean into the pain because that's, I've discovered that that takes me more quickly to places of joy and appreciation and love, mm-hmm. ultimately.
1: Yeah, that's, that's powerful. And I do remember <clears throat> you made uh, what I thought was a really uh, insightful analogy about going to the dentist. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Will you talk yeah. about that? Maybe that's yeah. related to this.
0: Yeah, it is absolutely. I, I think a, a lot of the grief books that I read had this advice of like, you know, go at your own pace. There's no rush. Grief is always here. Don't worry about it. Um, take a break from it. And and it's true. That's all true. And you do have to take a break from it. But I found that. I want to take a break forever, <laughs> and yeah. so I, 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 I wish there was a little more encouragement. <laughs> um, that would have helped me. So my book is sort of hopefully gently encouraging people to to let the, open themselves up to the pain of their loss, whatever that loss is. And so the analogy I came up with was the dentist. Nobody wants to go to the dentist. Your tooth hurts. You've got to go to the dentist. Um, and the, the longer you put it off, actually, the worse it is. And I think that's true for grief as well. I don't think you can just put off grief and it's fine. You know, like, I don't feel up for grief right now. I'm, I'm not going to grieve for the next month. You know, that's that's not going to work out so well in my experience. <clears throat> so, the same is with the dentist. You know, you got to get your tooth taken care of, even though it's going to hurt. Um, and the longer you you wait, the, the harder it is to be present in life because you're distracted by your toothache. Yeah. Uh, so there's this wonderful quote that I I, I think it was initially attributed to Chekhov Anton Chekhov, which is a playwright that I love because I'm from the theater. Uh, he's an amazing playwright, and um, uh, but he talks about no, nobody can fall in love with a toothache. And mm. If you're feeling a toothache, you, you can't fall in love. You're distracted, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you can't be present in this life if you're always got that pull of like ah I should be I need to be mourning I need to be feeling this grief, but I'm just I'm just trying to put it aside. Um, And uh, so I think in order to be more present in this world, we have to open ourselves up to the pain of the loss. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Well said. Thanks. Okay. Uh, All right. Well, with, and of course we can come back and explore any topic uh, at any time, but with your permission uh, and yeah, I feel, I feel a little awkward. I mean, I I don't think I should because I appreciate how open you are and, Mm. you know, uh, just, yeah, how open you are. And I realized this is like, it's not related sure. <laughs> to this heavy, can, so very heavy aspects to what we've been talking about. But yeah. uh, with your permission, I'd love to just go to uh, a series of questions on a variety of almost random topics. How fun. Okay. it's exciting. And here we go. That's right. I love it. Okay. So the first question is, oh, and you teach screenwriting. So yes, here's the, I do. The, uh, the Forrest Gump moment of... Uh, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Okay. Right? Life is like a... Oh. Life
0: is like, and it's not box of chocolates.
1: <laughs> no, no. I mean, it is, but not, not for this.
0: <laughs> um, life is like a series of paths through the woods, and you get to pick which path you want to take at each given moment. But there's a okay. lot of decisions that gotta be made.
1: Yes. Okay. Well done. Okay. Uh, yeah. Number two. What important truth yeah. do very few people agree with you on? Hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm gonna go right to the grief one, <clears throat> which is um uh, we all grieve in the same we, we we all avoid grief in our own individual ways, but we all grieve the same.
1: Mm. Okay. Uh, Question number three, if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan or phrase or saying or quote or quip on it, what would the shirt say? Choose love. Mm. Okay. Question number four, Mm. what book other than your own have you gifted or recommended most often?
2: Oh,
0: um, I think it would be, um, can I do several books or no?
1: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would love if you would tag on somewhere in there. What are you currently reading?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, um, I am, okay. So I've got like regular books and then grief books. That's why I'm thinking about it. Mm. So I, I recommended um, Bearing the Unbearable um, to all of my family. In fact, I bought them copies and mailed mm. them to them early on in grief because it has such a strong message about leaning into grief, leaning into the pain of grief. Um, so I recommended that to a lot of people. Uh, and the other grief book that I might recommend a lot is, um, uh, it's okay. You're not okay. Uh, by Megan Devine. And the other one's by Joanna Cacciatore, um, bearing the unbearable. So those two of the grief books and then, um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez is the book I recommend the, Well, not the books are the author. <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh love in the time of cholera or autumn of the patriarch um or 100 years of solitude are the books I recommend the
1: most awesome thank yeah. you what are you currently reading
0: so uh two books one I'm reading is uh, again a grief book <laughs> I've got two so i got the grief book side um is uh moving on doesn't mean letting go um and I'm all about with names of people and, and names of things. And the other book that I've just finished reading is, um, it was a thriller um, and it was, um, I have some questions for you.
1: Hmm. It was a, a marvelous thriller. You recommend for yes. people who like thrillers? Yes. yes. Okay, cool. All right. Question number five. I imagine when well, you talked about moving back and forth between, Uh, L.A. and Joshua Tree, but I imagine you've also traveled quite a lot in your life. I have. Uh, When you travel, what's something you do or something you take with you? Maybe Mm -hmm. a travel hack to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable. Oh,
0: I love uh, when I travel being familiar with um, the the spatial layout of the city I'm in. So Mm -hmm. I look at maps. I like to look at maps, so I know my way around the place, and and I know how to use the tra- transportation system, the subway, the buses, whatever it is. I love to feel like I know where I'm at. You know, mm-hmm. um, I know I know how to get from one place to the other. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I love to do when I travel. Okay, and I and I, and I love to explore off the beaten path.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I'll just divert from my own lightning round for a moment. Uh you mentioned in the book that the first first Thanksgiving, first Christmas, this was really hard, right? For you missing yeah. without Ruby and heart and both yeah. and with them when they I, I think you traveled with them. Yes, we did.
0: We traveled a lot to different countries. We, Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Tell me about your your travel deliberately, like over the holidays. Yeah. And so yeah. forth. So
0: so um So a lot of my book is about leaning into the pain of grief and holidays are very challenging. And so a lot of my advice is like, can you find, can we find a way to lean into the, whatever the holiday is and make it meaningful Um, rather than avoid it rather than say, let's Ah. cancel. However, (laughs) we did cancel the first Christmas told my families, we're not doing Christmas. Uh, And for, for my family, we celebrated Christmas. We're atheists, but, but, um, you know, Christmas is like a is really a pagan holiday in its origins. The tree, right? So um, don't so don't, us- tell <laughs> don't
1: tell the Christians.
0: Don't tell the Christians. But at any rate, um, <laughs> the magic tree with candles on it. But um, so we always, as a, my family always loved Christmas, uh, even though we we're atheists. But um, I'm the old, so I'm the, I'm the youngest of three siblings. I'm the only one with kids. So I brought the grandkids. Ruby and Hart were the kids at Christmas in my family, yeah. and so it was Christmas was the kids. It, that, and, and so they're gone now. And I couldn't stand the thought of that first Christmas. Um, so I said, let's cancel Christmas, even though it goes against everything I believe. And it was a great decision. So that sort of taught me like, you know, <laughs> don't be so so stuck. Don't be so stubborn in your ways. Right. Yeah. Uh, I can get dogmatic. And it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> it's okay to break your rules. So we escaped, Gail and I escaped to Italy, we went to Rome and we went to, um, uh, uh Naples and um we'd been to Rome with Ruby and Hart, um and we'd taken them to all the different places in in Rome and so we went to Rome we didn't escape our grief it came with us <laughs> but uh we kind of escaped Christmas however but um uh and we just walked speaking of like you know going to uh, you know off the off the beaten path Gail and I just walked all day long into all different neighborhoods in Rome Uh, we walked for miles and miles, uh, and saw amazing, amazing things in Rome, but we've been to Rome many times actually. But, um, uh, yeah, yeah, it was powerful. And we also, we went, we went to, um, uh, uh, Pompeii. uh, Yes. The town destroyed by Vesuvius. Pompeii. Thank you. We went to Pompeii, uh, and wandered around the ruins and that felt right too, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, uh, this is something, what you've just said reminded me, it was something that I appreciate about your book as well as your honesty when you would say, look, I know I said this and I did this. <laughs> <laughs> right. Even I'm not always consistent and you know, there's you don't have to be either and so forth, like you were really honest about. This is not prescriptive advice that fits everybody all the time and I'm the supreme authority. I was like, you're yeah. very, very real. Oh,
0: thank you. Thank you. I, I was thinking about that actually today, the idea that I think my book was written in, in pretty fresh grief. Uh, I think a lot of books, grief books are written from a, a, a remove, like I lost somebody 10 years ago and here's my wisdom. And, and I think, I think hopefully one of the pluses of this book is you kind of see me a griever in acute grief struggling <laughs> along yeah. with you because I'm, yeah. I'm just like in it. <laughs> I'm feeling yeah. it and struggling and trying to live with grief. Yeah. And that and that, that, that came through
1: for me for sure. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Okay. Uh, next question uh what's something you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well oh oh huh
2: i mean exercise
0: that's kind of boring though isn't it i've kind of always exercised on and off but i do think about in terms of aging well now (laughs) I'm 53 and I think about like, oh, I want to get healthy, stay healthy. Um, And then I think, uh, I think I've started to feel less, um, less uh, attached to the bad feelings of not being as successful as I wish I were. Hmm. Um, I think that's what I'm trying to do, trying to let go of, of um those feelings of dissatisfaction um with things i can't change okay sounds good right
1: (laughs) (laughs) i was gonna say it sounds kind of buddhist but yeah
0: (laughs) yeah i think so it's
1: good okay uh question number seven what's something you wish every american knew or every united states citizen oh
0: oh my god uh, but the first thing that popped up was, was uh, institutional racism., <laughs> um, uh, the history, the 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 history that people are trying to erase, um, the the, you know, the genocide of Native Americans and um, and how uh, and how leaning into the pain of our history, ultimately, right? I think that's that the whole idea of leaning into the pain. that there, There's ugliness. It doesn't mean that our country can't be beautiful. Um, and 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 powerful and meaningful, but if you erase the the dark parts, the hard parts, you that's not that's not going to help. That's going to be the opposite. It's gonna it's gonna cripple us ultimately. Make us unable to um, be beautiful. Uh, uh, so yeah, yeah. I think I wish everybody knew more about um, the the sorted, the sordid side. So that we can be better.
1: Yeah. Okay. And question number eight. What's the most important or useful thing you've learned about making relationships work?
0: Um, talking honestly. I think. Hmm. Yeah. Um, about, about all the hard stuff. Not being afraid of the discomfort. Because uh, everybody, as I am. Yeah. But, but if I, if I'm not, if I'm able to talk about it, it always, it always seems better, stronger.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. And question number nine, aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've learned about money?
0: <laughs> aside from compound, I wasn't going to say compound interest, but <laughs> 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 that wasn't going to be on the top. Um, what do I learn about money? Um, I think that it's relative that, um, that the value of it is, is, you know, what you can get for it, um, in terms of your own enjoyment, uh, or satisfaction. Um, you know, it's, it's 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 relative uh so you could have a whole lot of money and it doesn't help you because you're spending it wrong or thinking about it wrong or you're feeling like oh you wish you had more of it so you could buy that other thing when in fact the version that you can afford is pretty great (laughs) if you can enjoy that version that's pretty great yeah
1: okay thank you well, congratulations. You survived the enlightening light and round. You did great. <laughs> All
0: right. Thank you. <laughs>
1: uh, as a wrap up to that part of our interview here, uh, I did, speaking of money, I did want to mention a few things. Um, I've made a um, hundred dollar donation on oh. your behalf, Ruby's behalf, Ruby's behalf, Har's behalf. Two, one to the Trevor Project. So oh, I did beautiful. that. And one to Mothers Against Drunk Driving.
0: Oh, thank you. Yep. Thank and, you. And then beautiful. I've
1: made um, a Kiva loan, a micro loan to a woman in Tanzania Uh, her name is Renata she's 28 years old she's a mother of two children she's a farmer and she'll use this money to buy fertilizer and to help pay um, people who work with her and so she can transport her harvest to the to the market so
0: wow how beautiful yeah thank you for that that's that's so meaningful
1: yeah my my pleasure thank you yeah I,
0: I, I actually I I started giving to Mothers Against Drunk Driving when I was a teenager. Really? When I was 17 years old, uh I I started contributing like $25 to MAD and $25 to well, back then it was called Handgun Control Inc. Um and then it became Brady Bill. Um and so yeah, but gun gun violence.
1: What prompted violence. that so many years ago?
0: I don't know, I think back and I think like, oh, right on kid, <laughs> right on young, young, young Colin. I almost said young heart, young Colin. <laughs> uh, I don't know, it's just something about it. As a kid, I was like, yeah, drunk driving, that sounds terrible. <laughs> I, should, I should give this money to this organization that's going to fight that and guns, people being shot, and it seems so prescient of me, obviously, because yeah. now mad plays a different role in my life. but. Um, but then also, I think about the gun violence that kids. So many kids are dying, yeah, because they're being shot. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, yeah,
1: that's pretty amazing. And the fact that there are still ten thousand people a year dying in this country from drunk driver Drunk right. driving. It's just, yep, it's amazing. Ten
0: thousand totally avoidable deaths. Totally yeah. avoidable.
1: Yeah. Well, um, okay. So for the last part of our uh, conversation. I would love to ask you a few questions about writing, about creativity, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Um, So the first thing that I want to ask you about here is the role that writing can play in helping people process their grief. And maybe starting with the fact that um, prior to this, you did not journal. You really didn't journal in any regular way, but you started a grief journal. And in fact, took, as I understand, immediately, like the day after, wrote in detail in your journal about the crash. Yeah. Yeah. Will you say more about like that that process?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so right. So I, so I, am a writer. Um, I've written screenplays and and plays, um, and, you know, theater for theater. And uh, I never journaled. I always felt like I had these ideas that like journaling was like pretentious or something, you are know, like, Oh, I'm going to write in my journal about my deep thoughts. And I, I didn't have any deep thoughts. <laughs> I was going to share in my journal, but, um, but suddenly I needed to write something about what's happening to me. And so that was like uh, it was very helpful. I wrote, I kept a journal for the first year after the crash um, and wrote basically every day I wrote, I wrote an entry. Um, and I don't think I said anything useful or profound in any of it, but it sure helped me at the time. You know, I, I haven't gone back and read them, uh, my journal entries. What um, way did it help you? It helped me because I think that that we process everything in words. You know, when we 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 have a, a wonderful experience, we tell our friends about it, uh, and in the act of telling it, we kind of discover what it means to us. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah. Um, and because this is not so clear. And, and when I just felt grief on its own, it felt overwhelming to me. It felt like a, this amorphous, endless, shapeless state that was mm-hmm. crushing me. But if I could write about it in specificity and just say what was happening to me in the moment, um, I felt like I could, I could somehow get a handle on it. It, 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 shrunk, it shrunk it in my mind. Yeah. It made it more bearable. Um, so, yeah. So, so, writing in the journal really helped me. Um, and specifically the question you asked about the, the actual, uh, night the event of the crash, something inside my head knew that it would be horribly traumatizing to, uh, it had the potential to be horribly traumatizing this event. Um, and if I could just write out exactly what I remembered the, the next day, what I remembered of that whole day leading up to the crash and then after the crash and just got it out and put it on paper or well, my computer <laughs> on a file. If I'm just typing it, but um, I had it written out. I would be able to then relax about it and not have to revisit it for answers. You know, mm. I could in a way say I wrote it out and now it's it's done. And if I, my mind's going to go back to that crash night many many times, and it sure did, but I don't have to. I don't have to linger there because I'm not searching for answers uh I I wrote everything I I remember already I'm not going to remember new things and it helped me it helped me like um not obsess about that night Hmm. in a good way uh and I know another friend who did a very similar thing her her son overdosed and she wrote it all out um the day leading up to and after um her son's overdose and and she also felt like I I did that and now I don't have to um you know play it over and over and over Yeah, yeah yeah
1: You know, it, it reminds me a few years ago, I read um, a book you've, you've probably read or maybe come across the Besser Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps yes. the Score. Yes. And yes. I think there's a part in there where he talks about research that's been done on children who've had traumatic experiences who draw it ah. and, and share it. And their yeah. act of expressing it seems to mitigate its uh, impact. Yeah. On, on them in later, late, later times. That's is pretty remarkable. Yeah. And I think I yeah. think it was that book that talked about that was found to be true with survivors of 9-11 as well. Oh you know, people who talked about it or people who yeah. like somehow find a creative expression to to just articulate what their experience had been versus people who didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Powerful. The,
0: the, the big thing that I got from that book, very similar, is is the example that of taking action. Mm-hmm. Um, so, there, there, uh, he talks about this couple that are in this horrific car crash, multiple multiple car crash, where they witness other people dying and, and their car is smashed and destroyed. And, and the husband is able to get out of the car and the wife is pinioned behind and stuck.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: she had so much more PTSD symptoms than the husband. And the book sort of posits the idea that the husband was able to take action. You know, he, he could do something. Yeah. he didn't save anyone's life <laughs> but he got to move he got to do something with it and she was stuck and that really stuck with me that idea of can we take action which similar to what you're saying like if nine eleven happens and you if you can express it if you mm-hmm. can write it draw it you've done something and if you're just like ah you're gonna feel more of a victim i think yeah you
1: know? i think so yeah well and along along those lines um i want to ask you about how you chose to structure the book both mm. from the chapter organization mm. standpoint, but also each chapter, how you'd uh, thought of it as you were uh, creating it. Will yeah. you tell me the story behind the, how you settled on the structure that you ended up with?
0: Yeah, well, so, so I have to confess, I, I first wrote, what happened was that after the crash, uh, I was journaling, but I also started writing a, a solo show, a one person show about grief. Um, and I was developing that, for several months, and so five months after the crash, I would finished it, this whole play, uh, and then the, and then the pandemic struck, and all the theaters shut down, so I couldn't perform it because I'm a I'm a theater person. So I thought I would perform this solo show, and then we were all we were all um, the whole world was in lockdown, and I started writing the book, um, and I wrote the whole book. I wrote a whole solid full length book, and I sent it to my sister in law Betsy Lerner, who was a very established writer and agent and also um editor um and she said well (laughs) she was very supportive but she's like this the tone of this piece is pretty aggressive do you realize how many times you use the word you (laughs) for example Uh she's trying to be delicate but I looked at it and I was like oh my god (laughs) <laughs> I was just like yelling at the reader. You better yes. do this. You better do that. I was like, wow. "Oh my god, this is terrible. This is a terrible, terrible book." <laughs> and she said, "Well, you really need to do is change the tone and write it as a book proposal, mm-hmm. which means you you do annotated chapters and you do you send, send two full full chapters and a bunch of animated an, annotated chapters and as a pitch." And mm-hmm. I did that, um, and she was quite surprised that I was able to change the tone so completely. Um, because I think a lot of writers get stuck in their tone, but I was horrified by my tone. (laughs) I was like, oh, this is totally not helpful. (laughs) I'm trying to be helpful and it's not. So, I changed the tone completely. Um, And that initial book, the structure was actually, um, I think initially it was month by month. It was like the first year of grief and all the insights month by month, but it was kind of cheated a little bit because You know, I I was trying to organize it by theme and month at the same time. Um, I was working a little too hard to try and make it make sense. And so Mm -hmm. then I let go of the whole month by month structure and, Mm -hmm. and decided I wanted to structure it around what I call our sort of major issues that I encountered grieving. So, um, so, you know, denial, rage, fear, pain, holidays, um, and then meaning and purpose. As a as a as a structure as a an idea for the last chapter, um, and the structure the structure within each chapter. I don't know what my structure was. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just wrote it. I guess I'm, I, that's a terrible answer. No, well, um, it did
1: end up in in uh, it did end up as I believe with every chapter having both actions and yes. prompts.
0: Yes, and, and a ritual, and a ritual, ritual so, yeah. right. Right. So, start starting with chapter three when I introduced the idea of ritual, I would then include a ritual, and and those rituals did they were kind of uh, in the book. They are um, chronological for the most part. Mm-hmm. So they that was the last retention of the, of the chronology idea. Um, so the first ritual uh, is the first ritual that we did, and then each each chapter is almost I think is in is in basically the correct chronological order for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yes, right. So th- that that structure, yes, thank you. So so I talk about a central issue, and then and then I th- talk about a ritual that I think kind of helped with that specific issue, uh, or at least was interacting with it in some way, and then uh, and then journal prompts, and then um, and actions, actions people can take, mm-hmm. um, going along with the we talked about uh, der Kolk's idea that if you can take action, uh, that that helps you feel more like you are. An active, empowered person in your grief.
1: Yeah,
0: Um, you're you're doing it. You're making doing something. Whatever that thing is, doesn't really matter. But you're taking action. Yeah, it's empowering.
1: Well, and you mentioned at one point in the book on uh, when you're talking about despair Mm -hmm. that you almost decided to end the book with despair, but ultimately you didn't. Will you you talk about that?
0: Yeah. Well, again, I read a lot of a lot of some of the grief books that were so optimistic. They were so like this is pretty easy, <laughs> it's a pretty rosy view. And I was like, this doesn't feel too rosy to me. I'm in it and, and it feels not true. Uh, and I'm not gonna ever be healed or solved and I'm gonna still be rocked with despair. I don't wanna end with a positive you know, meaning and purpose and that's the end of it. You know, Like the idea that there are stages in grief, mm-hmm. um, which I, I could talk about at length, but basically it was a kind of a mis- misunderstanding of the idea of stages of grief. And that you progress from one to the next and then you get to meaning and purpose and or, or uh, acceptance and then meaning and purpose and you're done. That's not how grief works. But, um, and so I initially I was like, I'm going to end it with despair to really like tell the reader what the truth, <laughs> you know, but then I was like, well, wait a minute, that's not really the final word. That's not what we're striving for. <laughs> um, and ultimately it feels ultimately more truthful to end with meaning and purpose. Cause that's, that's the, our path back to life yeah
1: yeah well and, and for just a moment i'd love to to hear your thoughts on the stages of grief right because mm. this is uh elizabeth yeah. kubler ross popularized yeah. the idea of the five and then somebody five came stages. up with the six stage being yeah right
0: yeah yeah david kessler who who worked with kubler ross okay so, so uh there's a lot of misconception about it so it takes a little bit of historical analysis but what, but elizabeth kubler ross was studying uh, end of life uh, patients, so people in in hospice care mm-hmm. who are confronting the 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 in the very soon uh, uh, reality that they're going to die. So mm-hmm. they're in hospice care. They know they only have a month to live or two mm-hmm. months to live. And those people, she she discovered just anecdotally talking to a lot of them mm-hmm. that they seem to progress in these stages, and it and it seemed like a really like amazing eye opener. Um, to the reality that people do in that c- circumstance seem to go from one stage to the next. And, <laughs> and then in the end, they get to acceptance because they're dying and they're going to die and they realize they're dying and they accept that and then they die. <laughs> <laughs> you know? and, uh, and that was a very helpful way of organizing um, for, for people, you know, in hospice care and people facing their own imminent end of life. Uh, but then she applied it to grief. So, that was called On Death and Dying. That was her, her seminal book. And then she teamed up with David Kessler, um, and wrote uh, on grief and grieving, and and said, you know, these these five stages also seem to apply in certain ways to grief. But they said it's not sequential; it's not meant. You don't go from one to the other. Mm-hmm. Um, you 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 circle around them endlessly. It's not it's not linear. But the they used the word stages, and people get get that confused in their head because stages seems to imply you go from one to the next and then you're right. done like you're, you're in denial and then you go to, to anger and you're done with denial and now you're just in anger and then you go to i forget what the next one is but um but that's not how it works at all um and so i i do regret that they used the word stages because it has continued to conf- to confuse people mm-hmm. um but the idea that we that we have these feelings is i think very true to me we I definitely have denial and as i said rage and um uh and david kessler has written his book um is about this the the sixth stage meaning and purpose and i think that's very true that we that's part of grief as well yeah. you know we have to, w- once we lose someone who who is central to our identity it rocks our meaning and purpose life means seems meaningless and purposeless when we lose someone who's really integral to our identity. And it takes a while. It takes an active, I think, an active pursuit of meaning to get back. Yeah. Um, and uh, so so uh, I'm a fan of his book. Uh, I'm a fan of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, but I think it's been misunderstood. And they even say it's not, there aren't stages that you progress from, and it's, li- it's not linear, but it's still people have mis- misinterpreted
1: that. Right, that's the kind of soundbite. Under, it's understandable when you hear that,
0: that yes. it's stages,
1: that that's how you think of it. Right, And and incidentally, on this topic of these stages, you write uh, something about acceptance that I I appreciate you uh, explaining where you say, or you write, I used to imagine that acceptance implied a sense of feeling okay about whatever it was I was accepting. But using the term acceptance in relation to my catastrophic loss does not mean I am okay with it. It means I am no longer actively denying its reality. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's exactly what you talked about earlier, right? About however we word it, You know leaning into it engaging you know that's the whole process of engaging which is not actively denying you're no longer actively denying its reality
0: yeah yeah it's it's very hard for me to accept that ruby and heart are gone forever it is really hard even now it's almost four years since the crash it's three and a half something three three and three quarters and uh and it's still hard for me to believe it they're gone forever really I, I don't understand, <laughs> but I do. You know, yeah. I, I buried them, but uh, and I don't want to be in denial. I don't want to engage in the fantasy that they're still here. You know, that seems like a, a scary place to be and, and an unreal place to be. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I think it takes work. It takes work to accept the reality. The reality of loss. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, uh, just a few more questions related to writing and creativity here yeah. to bring us back to this. Um, what, I'm curious, did you have, or what, what was your working title as you were developing yeah. this book?
0: The working title was Teach Grief.
1: Teach, teach Grief.
0: Teach Grief. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and the idea was, <clears throat> um, that was the first book that was a little too aggressive. <laughs> um, but it was like, I felt like we needed to educate America, certainly, I don't know if the whole world, but certainly America about grief. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it felt to me like people were, were misunderstanding it, thinking that we should just leave grieving people alone till they fix themselves. Uh, That's a taboo subject that we don't talk about it, we don't say the names of the dead, we just sort of try and move on, um, get over it. And so, I really thought that, you know, this is sort of a mission, if we can, we can teach Teach people the realities of grief. It's going to make the grieving process so much better for everybody. Mm-hmm. So that was a grieve, that was the, the working title.
1: All right. And in terms of actually getting the book drafted, getting it, getting it drafted, getting it published, mm-hmm. uh, what what habits and routines uh, supported you? What did you use to get it done? Did you? I, I I'm really amazed when I ask this question. It's not mm-hmm. clearly worded in this case. But I find, truly, there are people who only write when inspiration strikes, and then there are people for whom inspiration strikes every morning at 9 (laughs) a.m., right? But (laughs) some people are morning, uh, you know, they're early birds, other people are night owls, like this and that. But what did you find with with this book? And then I would expand it to just say, generally, when you're in a creative project, what Mm -hmm. habits and routines do you use to help you get your work from an idea to a finished product? Yeah,
0: yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, my, my routine is, um, uh, I say fast and sloppy, but, but whenever I have the time, so I do not wait for inspiration to strike, um, whenever I find the time. So I, I, uh, it's a, it's a rough story, but we started to foster foster, to adopt a teen girl. And I mentioned that in the book. Um, and so I was, I would pick her up from school and then i pull into a, uh, the parking lot of a park and she she would go out and hang out with her friends in the park. And I would sit in the car and write, I'm typing on my computer. Um, and oftentimes it was really hot in the car. <laughs> I was parked in the sun and, and the sun was coming in and I'm just sitting in the back seat and I'm just trying to type this. It's just like squeezing it in because then I had to you know pick her up from the park and then drive her back home and make dinner. And like um, it was a, uh, it was so a lot of the book was written literally in the parking lot of, of a random park in Azusa wow. <laughs> um, at 45 minutes from my home. Um, and it wasn't ideal, but that's where most of it was written. Um, hmm. I think or a fair portion of it. And uh, ultimately that, that, that teenage girl decided she did not want to be adopted. And I talked about that in the book as another loss for Gail and I to mourn. We, we, um, <clears throat> We were so invested in the thought of like, oh, we're gonna be parents again. We're gonna honor mm-hmm. Ruby and Hart by staying parents and helping this this teen and building a family together. And ultimately, she was not ready to be in a loving home. She didn't she wanted to be ignored. She didn't want to, you know, parents. She'd never really been parented her whole life. Mm-hmm. Her whole life was a life of, you know, trauma. That's that's the tough, the tough story of many of these these youth who are in foster care is because their their home life was so uh, dysfunctional, uh, mm. abusive, neglectful, that they never really were parented. And so it's a hard to get her to open up and be vulnerable to it. Um, and so now actually Gail and I are fostering to adopt two new kids, wow. uh, a brother a brother and sister. They've lived with us now for five months. Um, How's that going? Fo- it's going well, it's going better. I think, I think they are more invested in the idea of being a family um, huh. and that's, so that's beautiful, but I don't know, yeah. <laughs> it's still being uh, written. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And a lot of it's like, I got to do your homework. <laughs> it's yeah. a lot of parenting yeah. that, you yeah. know, it's, it's not like easy street. <laughs> it's yeah. not like, it's not like, uh, you know, I don't know the fantasy it's like, oh, it's hard work parenting kids who again, also have not been parented too much. Um, no one's, no one's made them do homework like this before. Uh-huh. Wow. but but uh but i have i have high hopes uh i think it's going i think it's going well honestly yeah right on yeah all right
1: uh okay well i think i would maybe my last question here in the writing portion of the interview is what what advice or encouragement do you leave anybody watching or listening to this who are in one of two places They're, they either have harbored the desire, like they've dreamed of writing a book yeah. uh, for a long time, but they actually haven't begun, or maybe they are in the, the messy middle of the creative process. They've got an idea, they've been working on it, but they maybe don't know what to do next, or they're getting stuck somehow. What would you say to, uh, what advice would you give to somebody to help them get their own book done and out into the world?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I forgot to say the second part of the fast and sloppy, which is then revise. Uh-huh. So, so, but that's my advice, people are stuck, write, write it, don't wait for inspiration, don't wait for the perfect sentence, the perfect paragraph, write the crappy paragraph, write the crappy chapter. That's great because then you can revise and make it better. Um, it's so much easier to work with something that you've already written the rough draft of and then make it better. The blank page and you're just waiting for the perfect words that they're not going to come. Um, unless you're, I don't know, some kind of amazing genius. I think everybody writes terrible first drafts. Um, and the people, the writers are writers are people who go ahead and write that terrible first draft. And oh. the people who don't go ahead and write them are, are never going to be writers because they're never going to write. Um, so that's my advice always is to don't be intimidated by the blank page and don't, don't be so judgmental that you, um, you know, you're, you're just doubting yourself. Uh, oh, that's not a good idea. I bet it's a great idea. Any idea can be great, actually. <laughs> um, and you can start with a terrible idea and then it, it, it will get better as you work on it. Hmm. Absolutely.
1: Right on. Well, I'm reminded uh, just before we wrap up about the fact that you, you teach screenwriting, right? Yep. And, and uh, I, I love your take on what's the relationship. That's not the right word. Like, because there's talent and there's work. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Right, and some of us have, like our talent is somewhere we, we maybe don't even know yet, and of course our work ethic is somewhere, but that's the one that maybe we can influence more <laughs> than the other. <laughs> yeah. But when you see students like in a screenwriting class, and uh, mm. what what how do you see that? What's the relationship between talent and work, and what can we do to kind of improve our odds of of success and however we might measure it in writing?
0: Yeah. Well, I, I talk a lot about interest. <clears throat> about actually, when we're writing anything but specifically screenplays I guess but anything really is a we're, we're engaging in the interest of of the reader or the viewer mm-hmm. um, and we're holding the, the goal is to hold their interest ultimately that's what that's what theater and film is it's holding the interest of the viewer and what's interesting about that is that as humans we're interested in so many things right right so many things but you as a writer if you're trying to chase somebody else's interest, and you're interested yourself, it's not going to work. So mm-hmm. I really believe that part of what makes people's writing stronger is when they're able to touch base with what they actually are interested in themselves in a really yeah. honest way, you know, yeah. um, you're actually intrigued by it. You're not trying to, you're not trying to do it right for a political statement or like trying to, um, <clears throat> teach a lesson to somebody, but what are you actually struggling with? What is really bothering you? What What is your, t- pushing your buttons as a writer, right? Yeah. Not Not You're not trying to fix things. You're not trying to, um, like I said, have a, a beautiful story that wraps it all up and teaches us all a lesson. It's what's the question that you're struggling with and can you mm-hmm. explore that question? Um, because then you're interested as a writer, right? You're interested in yeah. the question. Yeah. And I guess my, my question is how do we, how do we work through profound loss with hope and purpose? How do we do it? <laughs> That's my, I'm interested in that for sure. Yeah. And that helped, that helped me, Yeah, you know, to write.
1: Yeah, that's great. I, lo- I love that as uh, like writing, like looking at our writing as the exploration of a, like a question, exploring a topic, answering the question.
2: Mm-hmm. In fact,
1: I, I interviewed um, someone named Mark Nepo who's written now almost 50 books. And he talked about, you know, he said the common writing advice is to that age old, write what you know. But he mm-hmm. said, the way I see it, I write what I need to know. And in that way, my books become my teachers. I was like, that Uh is a cool, cool view. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. That's great. Well, Colin, I, I have really enjoyed our conversation. I've appreciated the chance to get to know you through your writing, uh, through this conversation. Uh, again, I'm sorry, sorry for your loss. Um, thank you. Thank you. But I'm, but I'm grateful that you, uh, have taken the pain that you're and Gail are experiencing and turned it into something uh, that I certainly find meaningful and even beautiful in in certain ways. And I've learned a lot, and I'm grateful to you. So thank, thank you. you,
0: thank you. I'm grateful for you to have me on your on your show. This is so it's a great opportunity to talk at length.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it's been it. my pleasure. So again, Colin's book, Finding the yes. Words, yes. Working Through Profound Loss with Hope and Purpose. <laughs> And uh, people can connect with Colin, uh, colincampbellauthor.com. You can find him on Instagram, Colin Campbell Writer. Uh, and with that, I hope that for everyone watching, everyone listening, uh, that you will take something that you have heard here today and you will act on it to make your life better and the world a little more beautiful, a little more kind. So, beautiful. thank you. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the School for Good Living podcast. Before you take off, just want to extend an invitation to you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life still isn't working for many people. Whether it's here in the developed world where we deal with depression, anxiety, loneliness, addiction, divorce, unfulfilling jobs or relationships that don't work, or in the developing world where so many people still don't have access to basic things like clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, whether they live in conflict zones, there are a lot of people on this planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, or even if your life is working, but you have the sense that it could work better, consider signing up for the School for Good Living's Transformational Coaching Program. It's something I've designed to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated, or you've gone through a divorce, or you've gotten married, headed into retirement, starting a business, been married for a long time, whatever. No matter where you are in life, this nine-month program will give you the opportunity to go deep in every area of your life, to explore life's big questions, to create answers for yourself in a community of other growth-minded individuals, and it can help you get clarity and be accountable to realize more of your unrealized potential can also help you find and maintain motivation. In short, it's designed to help you live with greater health, happiness, and meaning so that you can be, do, have, and give more. Visit goodliving.com to learn more or to sign up today.